This podcast is sponsored by Equiland, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Asia Securities Finance Monthly. I'm Matt MacArthur in Hong Kong. Coming up on this episode, a historic move in the Philippines as the stock exchange approves short selling for the first time. We speak with the PSE COO, Roel Refran, and... I used to have a streak of exercising 757 consecutive days in a row with no rest days. Equilens Emma Douglas joins us for another edition of our quick fire segment, Five and Five. But first, it is a pleasure to welcome to the show today one of my favorite securities finance traders in Hong Kong, and certainly one of my favorite Aussies of all time, George Lindsay from HSBC here in Hong Kong. Welcome, George. Thanks, Matt. Now let's hop right into it. Talk to me about overall market trends and demand drivers, economic factors, lockup periods, and how's it all playing out here in Hong Kong? Sure. So we've definitely seen an increase in activity being driven by economic factors. You know, in particular, lockup expiries, coupon payments, changes to short sell eligibility. To name a few recently, in Hong Kong, we saw Nongfu Spring, Innovant Biologics, more recently Leap Motor, in Indonesia, GoTo. All of these names had really large upticks in interest starting a few weeks ahead of their major shareholder lockup expiries. And particularly for China property names, the coupon schedule tends to be a big driver in demand. Now, these aren't very sophisticated traits, to be honest. You can pull all of the lockup expiry and the coupon schedule data off Bloomberg. You can see changes to short sell eligibility on the exchange website. But you know, in this challenging environment, these trades tend to work. And so as a result, the trades are getting very crowded. You know, We're seeing increased competition for borrow. We're seeing fees going a lot higher than they would have before. And inventory is getting scooped earlier and earlier. Now, just to circle back, when you say crowded, you mean these trade ideas are very popular and the knock-on effect is that the borrowing rates get squeezed increasingly, becoming more expensive to borrow, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, anything that looks like it's going to have some relative expected value is getting really heavily bid up at the moment by an increasingly large number of market participants. So if there's something with a CB announced, or if there's rights, or if there's a merger arb trade, we're just seeing that explode in popularity. This is something outside my comfort zone, but quant versus fundamental exposure. Is it sector-wide or are there specific market-focused names? And I assume, are we seeing these themes outside of APAC? Yeah, so look, we see both. There's sector-wide thematic interest across a number of markets in APAC, uh, Hong Kong and China, probably the most common, but you know, we see it in Japan, we see it in Australia, we see it in Indonesia. The name-specific fundamental exposure is where we tend to see some of the most concentrated positions build up. And, you know, that could be a high conviction short in a Hong Kong listed China technology mega cap, or it could be a really bespoke Indonesian mining company. Are there other sectors that are seeing as much exposure? And what are the likely sectors to be focused for the next six months? Well, I guess over the last six months, the obvious one has been China property. But I think that we're starting to see this come off a little. You know, the the sector was adjusted dramatically downwards. And now it's really positioned to recover from the lows. So the immediate short demand has pulled back a little bit, but it's definitely not going away entirely. Over the next six months, 
I think we start to see an increase in demand, particularly across China EV names and related industries. So lithium miners and refiners in Australia, along with you know China electronic vehicle manufacturers like BYD, like Leap Motor, and the associated ecosystem around those. All right, let's move into the deep end of the pool here. This question is always a moving target, but index rebalance strategies, especially as many property development and housing names have dropped out of major indexes recently, MSCI, the FTSE, HSI, just to name a few. Can you walk us through what that means in English? Yeah. So there are various major indices. Some are market-specific like HSI and ASX200. Some are broader like MSCI and FTSE. And these are used by firms around the world to drive investment decisions. Uh, every usually quarter or every half year, these indices are rebalanced. And that's when names are added or removed based on a variety of factors, price, volume, market cap. Now, due to the huge number of funds that track these indices, the rebalances create outsized liquidity events in anything that's getting added or deleted. And there are trading desks which trade this strategy. You know, The strategy is very crudely, if a stock gets deleted, its price will probably go down due to the outsized amount of selling pressure. Uh, this has become a really popular strategy. So we see a lot of demand for names that are getting deleted or removed out of the indices. Now, at the same time, a lot of the borrowing the market actually comes from funds which track these indices. So this means that when a stock gets deleted from an index like MSCI, the market gets hit with a real double whammy. There's a big spike in short demand and there's a combination of asset owners recalling their inventory from the street on the back of either actual or expected sales. So when you get large fundamental shorts, which have already been on, like in China property, which we were just discussing earlier, you can get this risk of a squeeze occurring if not enough non-index tracking inventory can be found and clients have to be recalled. You know, as a result of these factors, we see a big spike in interest for non-tracking inventory and subsequently there's an increase in the cost of sourcing this inventory. It's a challenge that the industry will have to continue to manage because index rebalance strategies aren't going anywhere. They're only getting more popular over time. You know, you certainly hit a very topical topic with that, George, because as an agent lender, it is the majority of our focus daily, especially pre-rebalance and during the rebalance. So I feel your pain on that one. Now, this is my Jenga tower question. There are whispers that hedge funds have pivoted from direct China exposure, fundamentals, maybe not quant so much. Has that led to increased exposure in other APAC markets? And do we expect that trend to continue? So firstly, I think the whispers of hedge funds pivoting away from China are dying down. And I think they're fairly overblown. From what I can see on the long and short side of things, the market is hotter than ever. Now, that said... It's definitely true that we're seeing increased demand for exposure in other APAC markets, and I definitely expect that to continue. Look, I took a look at the data produced by Equilend earlier this morning. Japan, Taiwan, Malaysia, revenues are significantly up. Malaysia, the quantity on loan, it's up 46%. The volume and value of IPOs in markets like Vietnam, Indonesia, and Malaysia is growing, you know, a lot of them have had their first billion dollar IPOs in the last years, and they're expecting to have a lot more of them. So this is all combining to drive a lot of interest in the market from clients. You know, one thing that's also interesting, the Philippines, development in the Philippines with them opening up SBL in their market and opening up short selling. Look, I think that's a great development, and we're already seeing questions from clients 
I think if we continue to see markets opening up like that, we're definitely going to see continued increased demand across APAC away from China. It's ironic you mentioned that, George. We have the Philippine Stock Exchange on next, so your timing is perfect. And that was extremely comprehensive. I couldn't ask for a better conversation. Securities finance can be tricky at times, so I appreciate you being my resident Oppenheimer to help us uncomplicate current market trends. Thanks, George. Appreciate your time again. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Let's take an in-depth look now at the historic decision by the PSC to introduce short selling. It is our pleasure to welcome the Chief Operating Officer for the Philippine Stock Exchange, Roel Refran. Welcome to the podcast, Roel. Nice to be here, Matt, and good to meet everyone. Of course, congratulations on the recent launch of short selling in the Philippines. I can confidently, on behalf of our industry, say this is a huge win. Thanks very much, Matt. It's, it's definitely been a long time coming, but we're glad that we have been able to launch it. And I think in terms of the product life cycle, we understand that this is a first version, version 1.0, but nevertheless, we learn as we go. And hopefully, you know, with PASLA helping us and all the participants as well on board, we hope that we'll make it, you know, uh, speak the same language as we have seen this in other markets. And hopefully it also, we're able to derive the benefits uh, and, and, you know, the price discovery and the efficiency that hopefully this will also provide for the market participants. Now let's start from the beginning. What was the genesis behind the introduction of short selling? It actually started back in 2004, right? And, and, and you heard that right. That's 2004 when our tax laws were actually um, revised to include certain tax provisions that would allow for tax exemptions for securities borrowing and lending, so SBL. And that, thereafter, the regulators, the SEC, and after the SEC, our Securities Commission, and then us, the Stock Exchange, we came up with implementing rules and regulations to also tie in SBL, securities borrowing and lender, not just for sales management, but also for short selling as a trading strategy. So unfortunately, we couldn't launch it earlier because we needed to have not just direct lending as a facility for short selling and SBL, but also via what's called a lending agency. And just this year, our um, securities depository, the Central Securities Depository, was able to get a license from the SEC for purposes of providing a lending agency. And so there, thereafter, we uh, made sure that all the uh, reports, all the um, probably the onboarding are performed so that now, yeah, we're, we're able to finally say that we are ready and that uh, the systems are in place for purposes of short selling. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, you covered it really quickly, but let's just take a deep dive into it. Did the PSE take inspiration from any other regional markets when building out their SBL model? Meaning, is the lending structure in the Philippines similar to other markets in Asia? Oh, most definitely, Matt, only because we wanted to also check, for example, what learnings uh, other markets have had since, for example, the 07, 08 financial crisis, since they also launched their own uh, lending facilities. And just, just, just to give you an idea, for example, we were thinking in terms of the short interest ratio, we checked at other markets and not all markets would have the short interest ratio. But we're saying, okay, for a first version, maybe it would be best that we do provide for an SIR, short interest ratio. Secondly. Do we allow offshore collateral? So what I did was I did have certain discussions with, for example, um, foreign participants, and they saw the need for, uh, you know, by way of collateral, allowing also offshore collateral. So maybe, you know, making sure that the tri-party agents are there and understanding the risks in terms of control and, you know, if there's a default. So we did a lot of benchmarking, Matt. And, you know, of course, we might still need to recalibrate the system as we go along. But essentially, we feel... For a market where we are right now, uh, and our market's primarily institutional, there's also probably around half 
from the foreign participants participating on a daily basis in our market. So we needed to open this tool, this facility, not just to domestic, but also to the foreign participants. Now, just for context, is the Philippines an ID market like Taiwan and Malaysia? And more importantly, is on lending allowed? Yes. So it's essentially, we allow on lending for purposes of SBL, for purposes of short selling, right? Because essentially, the change of legal title will be for purposes of delivery obligations, and it could be for purposes that you have disclosed in your MSLA or in GIMSLA, right? So I'm also very aware that they might want to do a bilateral if they are qualified buyers, qualified uh, as defined in our regulations, that they can, by all means, do bilateral if they want to do more due diligence you know, for counterparty risk purposes. And we appreciate that, except that we feel that for purposes of promoting the program, the lending agency model right now would probably be a good platform. You know, if, if, if you look at um, agency lending services also, where foreign participants may already have their own GIMSLA registered in particular markets, then we made sure that the framework also readily adopts to that in terms of enabling participation by foreign, maybe as borrowers or even as, as lenders. But, you know, I, I, I think in terms of limitations, we made it as inclusive as possible. Now, with respect to the Philippine market, there's still heavy participation primarily by the institutional investors, the uh, hedge funds, the, the sovereign wealth, the pension funds. And I think that provides us a natural liquidity pool for purposes of the lending facilities. Essentially right now, in terms of the lending fees, everyone's still waiting uh, to see what would probably incentivize a lot of the long-owned institutions to probably participate. And we feel that, of course, right now, the market's moving sideways, so we still don't see a lot of potential activities. But nevertheless, we'll probably touch on all of these and collect and process the information to also market the program furthermore. And I think active marketing is still required of us. Otherwise, you know, we we don't want a product that's there, but it's not being widely used only because they kind of don't understand fully the um, requirements as well as, you know, sometimes they may have conceptions or misconceptions about the program. So we're here, in short, to enable and to really touch base and engage with a lot of participants, Matt. Now, you talked about it very quickly, but let's talk about it in, in deeper detail. The importance of supply from the offshore lenders or investors. Are there any limitations? For example, is the eligible short sale universe limited? Good question, Matt. So, well, when you look at the requirements for short selling and you look at, for example, um, foreign lenders or foreign borrowers, essentially we did not provide for limitations particular to the program. In short, you could undertake the short selling on both sides of the transaction. And the reason for that is Yes, there might be certain nationality restrictions, Matt, present in our market, and the foreign investors through the custodian banks know of that. So that still would apply. But for example, if you do the short sell as a foreign participant and you needed to do your borrowing transaction uh, for purposes of making sure that on delivery date you do have the securities, then we understand that it's actually going to be, uh, leave some more room for the uh, domestic investors because you're actually unloading the shares, right? But I guess what I'm saying is the limitations are to all, essentially, right? We're very conscious of that because offshore collateral can be done, Jimsla. You don't have to redo everything. We do allow Jimsla, the global master template, for purposes of the compliance with the requirements that you do have that MSLA in place, clearly defining all the rules and, and, and the expectation of the parties. So we're hoping that there will really be at least you know, keen interest 
on the part of the offshore participants, no, whether directly or probably through the uh, agency lenders or even through the uh, agent facilitators. So we've made it uh, as, as inclusive as possible, Matt, and we'd like to see a, a lot of participation, especially from the foreign participants. Now, I think the natural follow-up question is, how often will the short sale universe be reviewed? Okay, that has been a topic of discussion with our regulators because the way our rules stand now, we do allow for the, I would say the per se, or as and of this themselves, they can be short sold. And these are the index stocks. And we did include as well exchange-traded funds. But there has been a lot of press around why we are limiting it to certain classes of shares only. Right. So the question on how often that will be is, I think, what our regular review process will be is to continue to engage with participants and with the public and see also what data points we have. We are not constrained by, let's say, a periodic or a semi-annual review. All that we have to do really is just to make the proper um, clearances with our securities regulators. If we are to allow other shares of stock outside of what we have already announced, so we've announced that the main benchmark stocks, the dividend yield, as well as the mid-cap stocks and ETFs are all short-sellable. But if, if and when we expand that universe, uh, Matt, I think we will give the public as much uh, lead time for purposes of also of uh, cascading that information. So it's something that's not cast in stone in terms of the regular review. But for a first version, I think uh, it's it's uh, probably going to be at least uh, six months and we'll go back uh, to the drawing boards and see, is there something that we could further do to boost, um, I would say, interest as well as you know provide more flexibility to the stakeholders? Yeah, your transparency is fantastic. That's brilliant. Now, the overall interest from onshore participants, how's that been so far and are investors ready to trade? Onshore participants, so I look at those who have already had their uh, MSLAs in place since more than a decade ago. So those participants were ready from the get-go. They just needed to probably upgrade some of their uh, back-end systems. Now, the challenge that we're having now is to also onboard a lot of the other participants who are just starting now. And that's par for the course, Matt. You know, in any new product that we have, we always say that there's a gestation period for purposes of them also readying their own services to their clients because we do understand that we are not limiting this to institutional investors. This is also available to the retail investors. But that being said, of course, as a broker, you do have your fiduciary duties to make sure that you also provide for certain risk parameters so that you know expectations as well as probably the retail investors understanding the risks as well as probably the opportunities that it may provide or it may not provide. Right, give, give and take all the potential uh, risks that may materialize. We want to make sure that when they say they're ready, it's not just them declaring that they're ready. It's them providing for the risk parameters. It's them onboarding their clients. And there has to be certain safeguards because, you know, the way our industry is here in Manila, you know, in, in terms of the participation by the retail sector, we still need a lot more in terms of the uh, participation, uh, the retail take-up. And so I think awareness as well as probably, you know, onboarding the brokers to make sure they see the merits as well as, you know, the expectations and the risks, they have to be clearly articulated to the investors. And the last thing we want is for them to just to blindly follow the institutionals, uh, Matt. And, and I think we're seeing this also to be a, uh, a challenge to not just the gatekeepers, but also to us as we do a lot more engagement programs uh, to make sure that everyone's on board on this particularly new product. Now, switching from retail investors to institutional, from what I've gathered, one major concern for institutional investors or lenders is the treatment of settlement failures. Are you able to share any insight on this, particularly for sales which are dependent on recalls? Well, we've had uh, settlement failure situations uh, independent, for example, of the new program that we've had. No? So the thing is, 
we do have a program already with the Securities Depository. So unlike in other markets, that uh, program allows, I would say, the expedited delivery because it's not going to be through our trading system for purposes of those. Uh, you know, our program with Securities Depository allows that the um, shares that will be lent, right, uh, whether it's for recall purposes or for sales management, will be there in a period of time that will allow them to deliver and use that facility for purposes of their obligations. Right? So we've explained that to the institutional investors. The only caveat is that for purposes of them complying with the regulations, they need to already have uh, the registration of the MSLAs with their Bureau of Internal Revenue and National Tax Authorities. And that's where we've been helping them on the past, uh, I would say, the past one, two years. And I think the institutionals do understand that right now. They don't want to run afoul the regulations, the tax authorities, as well as the securities regulators. And so I think with the presence as well of the lending agency, that also gives them an additional flexibility for purposes of supply, more transparency, and probably even hopefully the, the rates at which they're able to do the transaction will probably be more market-friendly and more efficient. Now, I know there are many misconceptions around short selling, and sometimes it even gets negative press. Have you encountered any pushback regarding securities lending at the PSE? Oh, there have been some write-ups. There have been some, uh, I would say, misconceptions, negative press. You know, primarily what we all, always tell them is that when you look at short selling, it's not an everyday thing, right? It's not like you would have a, a, a short transaction that could probably drive your price down if you're the issuer or you have probably a lot of investors ganging up on you. What we're telling them is that this short selling has its own risk parameters. For example, Matt, we do have what's called the optic rule. Unlike in other jurisdictions, uh, we've always had that from the uh, from day one, the optic rule. So for purposes of transacting, you, you're driving a particular strategy, you're, you're implementing it, but you're also going to have to be executing your, uh, your short sell at a tick size higher than the last traded price, right? And essentially, there are other parameters in place, right? Because there have been concerns about, you know, a GameStop scenario replicating itself in Manila. And I, I always tell them, the framework that we have may be customized, given that we have seen around other markets what would probably help us better control, you know, in the sense that you, know, you want to make sure that the facility is there, but also it, it's not something that would just spiral out of control. So in terms of the press, I think it's going to take time also, and, and that's where podcasts like yours also help a lot. I think they also have some, um, I said, reservations about the requirements for purposes of coming up with all those agreements. And we tell them, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel here. We want to make sure that we speak the same language, not just domestically, but also offshore. And so as, as, as a matter of fact, we do allow gyms less, right? If it's already uh, in place in other markets, then, you know, let, let's see how we can also not anymore redo everything from day one. And essentially, I think in terms of the uh, fear of the unknown, Matt, you know, I think we're still at that stage for some. But overwhelmingly, the interest level has been positive. And I would always say that, you know, it, it's really something that will de be dependent as well on how well we communicate the program. And it's going to be, you know, hopefully something that will be iterative and, and will recalibrate and see how better to perform and to provide the service as we go along. Yeah, I think this is an especially hot button topic right now on the back of the recent short sale ban in Korea until June of 2024. So thank you for being so transparent. Now, I'm certainly not trying to make you into Notre Dame or Archimedes, but can you give us your predictions on the size of the SBL market in the Philippines, say Q4 2024? Matt, it's something that, you know, we could probably 
just just say in principle what we're looking for is that compared to the universe of lendable stocks, and right now it's something that we're still uh, drawing out. No, what what information is there? We hope that for purposes of the actual on loan securities, that at least we see probably at least ten percent. No, we're very conservative. At least ten percent of the lendable stocks really, you know, the participation is there. At least you know one out of ten would see that at some point. Because for purposes of let's say you know the the purpose, if if it's for fails management, then the lesser the better for us. But for short selling, I think in terms of the participation, if if we're able to see across the region participation from you know from the retail as well as the institutional investors, and that they are ready for purposes of executing a short, they have the SBL facility in place. We would probably already be um, saying that this is the goal for us, that they are ready. Right, readiness in terms of taking all the boxes, readiness in terms of system, readiness in terms of communicating to their clients. So, and we're very pragmatic. Uh, we we don't want to, you know, also be too hard on ourselves, Matt. But I guess it's really the feedback. It's really the continuing um, improvements that will probably be more on our radar screen for the next year. As uh, that would probably be the stability phase, as I would call it, for any new product. And Hopefully, the transactions that would also have a trickle-down effect in the underlying market would also bring in more liquidity as we are also coming up with more products for purposes of stakeholder engagement. Yes, we'll definitely watch this space. Got it. Now, Roel, this podcast is the perfect forum for APAC-related news for all securities finance traders globally. So thank you on behalf of Pazla for being so transparent and helpful. And of course, Pazla will be hosting our annual conference in Singapore in March 2024, and I can only hope that you'll be joining us then. Well, I'll be there, Matt, especially now that the best way for us to probably learn is to engage actively and not just be a passive learner here. So yeah, looking forward to that program as well for next year. It is a real treat to have with us today one of the newest joiners to the securities finance industry from right here in Hong Kong, Emma Douglas from Echoland. Welcome, Emma. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Now, I remember the first time we met, you said, I don't know who you are, but I recognize your voice, which proves you are one of my three loyal listeners. So thank you very much for that. I've been a faithful listener of the Puzzler podcast, so I'm even more excited to be on here. So thank you for having me. Okay, TikTok. Let's start the clock and jump feet first. For those who aren't familiar with Hong Kong, can you give us some of your favorite city highlights? Of course. Well, prior to moving to Hong Kong, I had never really stepped foot in Asia before moving here. So I vividly remember thinking on the plane, I should have given Hong Kong a little bit more of a Google. I thought it would be a massive concrete jungle, which it is, but I had no clue about the massive beaches, islands, hikes. It's a big life change. Now, you recently moved from JP Morgan to a client-facing role at Equiland. How are you enjoying the newfound stress? JP Morgan and Equiland are two very different firms. JP Morgan has nearly 300,000 employees globally, whereas at Equiland, we're a bit smaller with 350. So the stresses are very different. Previously, we're a lot more specialized in our roles at JP Morgan, whereas now I have much broader scope at Equiland. When someone calls me, I have no idea if they're going to be a trader operations, sales, relationship managers, or what products they're going to ask me about. Whether it's 
trading, post-trade data, regulation or reg tech. But that has its advantages because I get to get involved in a lot of different things and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Now, let's talk about your securities finance development. Jumping into a mature business can be very intimidating. How's it going so far? I joined JP Morgan on an apprenticeship at 18 years old with little understanding of even what an investment bank was. I remember being asked by one of my first early team members, do you know about the different components of JP Morgan? And I was thinking, I don't even know which one I'm really in. So I've come a long way since there. I've had the opportunity to move from back office roles to middle office roles to having experience on the lending desk before moving out to Hong Kong. And now finally, I'm in Equilend, which has been an incredible opportunity in that I can combine my previous security services experience with my dream role of relationship management. The opportunity definitely presented itself a lot earlier than I had expected, but maybe that sort of career path takes luck but I would definitely credit a lot of it to my network that I've built. And I've been incredibly blessed with the mentors that I've had. and They will know who they are. Now, I'll tell you an embarrassing story about myself. And don't worry, I'll keep it PG-13. One of my first jobs out of college, the head trader pulled me aside and said, Matt, I want you to march into the senior managing partner's office and tell him he is a pompous jerk. So I said, why the hell would you want me to do that? And he said, well, you've pissed everybody else off in the firm, so I just want you to be perfect. (laughs) Admittedly, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I understood the life advice that he was so eloquently giving me. What is some of the best advice you've received? The best advice definitely came from my time at JP Morgan. I had a mentor who was an army veteran. So a lot of people often tell you, never look back and don't look down and focus on what's ahead. But I would actually completely disagree with that. Banks are incredibly fast paced and it can be incredibly overwhelming. You can look up and see a mountain of work and tasks to do that you can get crushed by. The advice that the army veteran gave me was look back down the hill. So always remember to look back at what you've achieved, no matter how big or small. I do apply this to everything. Like looking at my career, I can be daunted by the next 15 years and what they hold for me. Or I can look back and compare 18-year-old Apprentice M to where I am now and get a sense of achievement instead of dread of what's to come. It's quite deep, but that's definitely helped me out. If you had one shot to pick a career outside of finance, what would it be and why? I would love to be a personal trainer. I used to have a streak of exercising 757 consecutive days in a row with no rest days. So even when I was ill with COVID and trapped in a cupboard size of a flat in London, it was on Christmas Day, so that's incredibly tragic. But I did get my HIIT workouts done and maintain that streak. So I love the gym. I'm doing high rocks doubles this year, which is for some reason my idea of fun. And I've even had friends that have offered to pay me to coach them. So who knows, Matt, I might have a side hustle up and running in the future. Oh my God, Emma, we couldn't be more different. (laughs) I see the gym twice a day as I walk right by it, before work and after work. If you go into the cafe downstairs, does that count as going to the gym? I will count it as going to the gym from now on, I promise. 
Oh, there we go. <laughs> Emma, it was a pleasure to have you on today. And you probably know this, but my nickname in the market is Cold Product, and rightfully so. But I know talent when I hear it, and you have it in spades. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for the kind words. Before we go, a quick reminder that our annual industry conference returns to Singapore on the 5th to the 7th of March. Check out the PASL website for more details and mark your calendars for the first networking event of 2024 taking place in Tokyo in January. We'll be releasing details very shortly. That's it for this episode of Asia Securities Finance Monthly. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt MacArthur in Hong Kong and join us in December wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was sponsored by Equiland, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry.